Chapter 15 of Pioneer Work in the Alps of New Zealand by Arthur Paul Harper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gail Timmerman Vaughan. Chapter 15 Twain River, Karangarua. Douglas Pass, Head Basin of Twain River, Douglas Glacier, Camp, Horace Walker Glacier, Moraines, Lower Valley, Hasty Retreat, Bivouac, A Night with the Typo, Return to Habitation. From Cairn 4, on December 27th, I had been able to examine the Twain Valley, from Douglas Glacier to the Great Gorge, and could see that we should have a long day's work, with the Maoris slow travelling, before a suitable camping place could be found in that valley. I therefore decided to sleep near the saddle on the night of the 23rd of January. Leaving one day's food on Christmas Flat, and taking the remainder of our stores, now reduced to sufficient for four days, with reasonable luck in birds, we ascended the slopes toward the saddle, and having found a fairly level place, 1,298 feet above camp, slept out on the grass. At 5.45 a.m. on the 24th, we again moved off, and dropping over into the McCarrow Glacier, went about a mile and a quarter up the ice to a saddle, the Douglas Pass, 6,115 feet, on the north side, reaching it at 10 a.m. Here I had to spend two hours making observations, and continuing a short distance further up the glacier. The formation of the country is most peculiar here, and needs a word or two of explanation. As already stated, the Hooker Range branches off from Mount Munga, and runs to Mount Howitt before turning in a southerly direction. The Douglas Pass is a high saddle over this part of the range, but lies only twenty or thirty feet above the McCarrow Ice. On the Twain side of the pass, however, there is a steep slope, cut up into ice-worn rocky terraces, descending for 1,550 feet onto a small gravel flat half a mile wide by one mile long. Thus, this offshoot of Mount Monga seems to me an imposing range from the Twain, but from the McCarrow Glacier appears merely a low rocky ridge rising out of the ice. From the pass the view is weird and magnificent, as indeed is the whole of the Twain Valley, though very limited in extent. Looking northwards, we had on our right and left a ridge rising sharply from us towards Mount Monga and Cairn 4, respectively, and forming the saddle. To the right front, a deep short ravine, surrounded on three sides by overhanging black cliffs, on the top of which several small ice fields are scattered, and keep up a running fire of avalanches, forming in the bottom a moraine-covered glacier, which I called after Mr. Fitzgerald, who was in New Zealand at the time with his guide Zulbringen. Forming the eastern end of the ravine in which this glacier lies is the dividing range, well over 8,000 feet, Mount Monga, a very graceful two-horned peak rising at its head. The glacier flows for a mile between the enormous cliffs to the edge of the small gravel flat, 4,562 feet, across which the stream flows to the foot of some immense terraced precipices, which form the left of the picture, and flowing along their base finds its way out of the flat at the northern end under the moraine-covered ice of the Douglas Glacier, which flows past the opening of the basin on the north. Straight in front of us lay the grand neve of the Douglas Glacier, coming off Mount Sefton, which stood in all its white majestic grandeur, framed by these dark and gloomy precipices. This great ice-field lies on the sloping rock roof of the Karangarua Range, and is bounded on the east by Mount Sefton, and the west by some precipices, five thousand feet high, rising up to the summit I named Pioneer Peak, when on Cairn 4. It is nearly four miles long and slopes down to the top of a long, sheer, black precipice, 
varying from two thousand feet at the west end to one thousand feet at the eastern end over which ice avalanches constantly fall and to form the trunk of the glacier in the valley nearly four miles in length consequently we have the peculiar picture of a neve running along parallel with the trunk of the glacier supplying it with avalanches over great cliffs and not any single point having direct connection with it the simplest way to form some idea of it would be to imagine an ordinary lean-to with a roof about three and a half miles by one and the back wall averaging five hundred feet the neve lies on the roof and drops its ice over the back wall forming the glacier which flows along the base of the wall and for half a mile beyond it the approximate area of the ice field lying on the roof is two thousand five hundred acres it is probable that a body of water like the marleyan sea by the alleged glacier was at one time in possession of this basin fed by the fitzgerald glacier and upheld by the douglas as it flowed past the northern outlet of the flat when i met fitzgerald and zurbriggen later in the season i could not help regretting that they too had not seen this wonderful sight which of its kind is the finest scene in our alps and i doubt if it can be surpassed anywhere looking to the south the view was cut off by the spurs of the dwarf but the fine sweep of the mccarrow glacier as it curved past under the great precipice from the karangarua pass and mount townsend was beautiful beyond the pass fetz as usual showed prominently his fine peak reminding me very much of the weisshorn at noon we began the descent into the twain and i had the most trying bit of work of the season for not only had the loads to be lowered down on the rope over the rocky faces but the maori and his dog also poor old bill did his best but is not a mountaineer he is only an honest maori who was never built to do alpine work we had the pea rifle with us and managed to shoot two kias on the way down a short quick tramp took us across to the northern end of the flat and four hours three of which were occupied in going two miles over the worst moraine i know brought us at seven p m to a small flat a quarter of a mile below the douglas glacier where we rigged up a rough shelter near some stunted scrub three thousand six hundred feet above sea level the maori's sandals of course made him very slow and were cut up quickly by the sharp stones of the moraine and the last of the three pairs he had brought with him came to pieces on his arrival at camp while making our shelter of scrub we got four wekas and though without salt or sugar indeed we were getting used to it now had a good meal the first since six a m and were soon asleep in our blankets on the twenty fifth i went down the valley to the terminal of the horace walker glacier three thousand five hundred and eleven feet about a mile below camp and skirting along its great lateral moraine traversed the grassy and rocky slopes until i could see through the great gorge into castle's flat having completed the lower portion of the valley i descended to a most interesting system of lateral moraines near the horace walker this glacier flows from a basin formed by pioneer peak and the karangarua range and descends in a westerly direction for nearly two miles and then sweeps round until at its terminal face it is almost flowing in an easterly direction the whole roughly forming a large horseshoe at the point where it comes out of its valley it has formed a very fine lateral moraine on the outer side of the curve and behind this moraine is the perpendicular series of smaller moraines mentioned above from the top of the present lateral moraine on one side to the ice is over one hundred feet and on the other to the river there is about four hundred and fifty feet descent about the middle of the curve on the river side of this lateral moraine and sixty feet below it there is a series of semicircular moraines with great gaps or openings in their sides 
like gates in an old Roman fortification, and in front of each such opening a small moraine has been thrown up, as if to cover the entrance to the fortress. These small terraces are ten to twenty feet high, and extend in curve after curve for two hundred or three hundred yards in the widest part, until there is a large unbroken semicircular moraine, which falls away nearly four hundred feet on the river side, but is only thirty feet high on the inner side of the fortress. It would have been an ideal place to defend in ancient days, and really seems to have been built by human hands, each earthwork being thrown up with great accuracy. I find some difficulty in accounting for these old moraines, for they are lower than the present lateral. Had they been higher, there would be good reason to suppose that the glacier at one period of its existence took a wider sweep before turning up the valley. There may have been a large terminal moraine thrown across the valley by the ancient ice flow of the Douglas Glacier, and the horse walker, being unable to cut its way through, has been turned in its course. I'm not, however, prepared to allow that these great moraine deposits belong to the Douglas Glacier, but am of opinion that the Horace Walker has been responsible for them entirely. It is more than probable that the ice originally flowed directly down its valley and came out at right angles to the Twain, forming in the first place an outer moraine across about two-thirds of its terminal face, and having its outflow at the other side where the moraine did not exist, and then, retreating a little way, deposited another great moraine, partly terminal and partly lateral, which now forms the high lateral moraine. This was followed by a considerable shrinkage, until the glacier was smaller than it is now, and then a period of advance set in, causing the ice to flow down against the old terminal moraine, and being unable to push it aside, turned along its base and flowed down to its present position. Had this been the case, the glacier would have the old terminal moraine along its side, and make it appear to be a lateral moraine. Otherwise, I am at a loss to account for the easterly curve of the glacier up the valley, unless some such old moranic deposit caused it to do so. The natural course would appear to be down the rapidly descending main valley of the Twain River. From point H, above this lateral moraine, a general view of the valley can be obtained, and the wonderful precipices bounding it on the south are seen to advantage. From the Douglas Glacier to Castle's Flat, the whole of the southern side is walled in by rocky precipices, descending from terrace to terrace for two thousand and even three thousand feet. At the base of these the river flows, having formed here and there a small flat of an acre or less, behind the short buttresses, they can hardly be called spurs, of the range. About a mile and a half after it leaves the Douglas Glacier, the river is joined by the short but deep stream from the Horace Walker Ice and a mile further, having passed along the foot of the moraines of that glacier, it descends rapidly through a narrow and deep gorge. Apparently, it has here encountered a rocky bar across the valley, and has cut a narrow, black-looking channel of over two hundred feet in depth at the lower end, while at the upper end, where it first encounters the bar, it has only been able to wear away a shallow channel of a few feet. On each side of the gorge is a level floor of water-worn rock, and at the lower end the walls cannot be many feet apart. I had not time to go down and inspect this place closely. Lower down the valley, after another deep but short gorge between two picturesque rocky bluffs has been passed, the precipices, as it were, retire back from the river and rise out of a gentle slope of debris, which lies at their base for three or four hundred feet, and is covered with vegetation. Above this slope the cliffs are more sheer than before, and in places look as if they had been rough-hewn by human hands for hundreds of feet. 
after flowing along the foot of the short slopes for a mile the river turns to the left and descends rapidly over the great cataracts through the gorge to castles flat on the northern side of the valley the karangarua range rises gently at an angle of about thirty degrees broken here and there by terraces of rock and its grassy slopes evidently having little hold on the rock underneath for spaces of smooth rock can be seen where the soil has slipped or been washed away above the horace walker stream is a grassy flat of about twenty acres on which numerous heaps of old moraine are to be seen and after passing along at the foot of the terrace another flat is to be found higher up the valley of similar size at the edge of which we were camping for a quarter of a mile between the camp and the glacier there was a confused mass of moraine hillocks and large erratic blocks more or less covered with stunted scrub and beyond this again filling the upper portion of the valley is the moraine covered trunk of douglas glacier three thousand six hundred and sixty three feet flowing at the foot of black cliffs parallel with its grand neve which descends like a great white mantle from mount sefton's mighty shoulders during the day i had been rather anxiously looking out for some flax to take back to bill with which he could make some more parara and at one time i feared there was none growing in the valley if there had not been any it would have been very exceptional for it grows as high as any other mountain scrub it would have also been most awkward because bill could not have gone back barefooted however on the horace walker moraines i found some and cut enough for all purposes for i wanted some for the bread also this year when away from castle's flat i used to knead the flour on a flax mat and bake the bread on a flat stone over the fire which turned out perhaps better bread than the frying pan having cut all the flax that we were likely to require i set fire to the scrub on the old moraines little thinking that i was starting more than an ordinary conflagration the scrub however was dry owing to a prolonged spell of fine weather and burnt for three whole days filling the valley with a dense cloud of smoke which was seen so i heard afterwards over mount sefton at the hermitage this burning of scrub will benefit any future expeditions for it never grows again and will leave a few open patches in unexpected places on the way down from camp in the morning i had avoided the horace walker stream by crossing on the ice but as i was now traversing the main river up along the side I had to ford the stream near where it joined the river. It has a very rapid descent, and was dirty, and fairly high after the hot day. So I found it rather awkward to cross, and when just in the center I trod on a large loose stone and fell over. Luckily, my hands came onto another stone near the surface of the water, so I was able quickly to recover my footing. But had they gone into deeper water, nothing could have saved me from being washed out into the main stream which was rushing along toward its rapid descent into the gorge. The Twain is unfordable in the summer, from the glacier to Castle's Flat, and like all other such mountain torrents, it would kill a man by dashing his head against a boulder before it drowned him. The cold of the water is, of course, intense. Even where it joins the Karangarua, miles below the glacier, the temperature was just under 40 degrees Fahrenheit. When at Bark Camp on my return, I measured the daily rise and fall of the river in fine weather, due to the melting of the ice up the Twain. The stream at that point was about eighty yards broad, and the rise and fall varied from three to six inches in the twenty-four hours, according to the temperature of the day. No doubt, if such measurements could be extended over a long period, some interesting figures could be recorded as to the melting caused by the sun in summer and winter. My measurements only extended over three days, and were therefore of little value. Arriving at camp about 7 p.m., 
I found that Bill had cooked the rest of the birds, which we found on the evening before, but had failed to find any more. On the 26th, I was again working in the lower part of the valley for nearly ten hours. These long days of heavy climbing were hard work, as the Maori was no good on the hills and had to be left in camp. Also, I had to carry twenty-five pounds of instruments, cameras, and books all day, a constant handicap. In fact, ever since the beginning of December, all the high work had to be done alone, and I had no companion on any expedition from camp on the mountains. Bill spent his day in making sandals and looking for birds, but had no luck, so we were again reduced to small rations. We had only brought enough stores into the Twain to last us for four days, if we got plenty of birds. In fact, we were practically depending on the latter entirely, and the little flour, etc., was not equal to more than one or two fair meals. No one had been into the valley before, therefore birds should have been plentiful, as they were in the Karangarua Valley. But not only did we get none, except the four above mentioned, but also those four were too poor to be of much use. There was still work for two days to be done, and I dared not risk being caught in bad weather here, because our retreat would have been cut off. So instead of taking a day off on Sunday, the 26th, I went up the Horace Walker Glacier to the foot of the icefall. Though of no great size, this glacier is very fine, and has only one small patch of surface moraine on it, about a mile from the terminal face. Before it reaches the Twain Valley, it is bounded on the northwestern side by fine precipices of 900 to 300 feet in height, on the top of which a large secondary glacier lies, and drops frequent avalanches onto the trunk of the Horace Walker. This upper ice field I named the Pilkington Glacier, and it comes from a nice-looking peak, Mount Glorious, and forms a snow saddle between the Twain and Regina Creek Valleys, draining partly into the latter. The neve of the Horace Walker is of considerable extent, and lies in a basin formed by the Karangarua Range, and the short high spur on which is Pioneer Peak. A fine icefall between high cliffs connects it with the trunk. Had there not been several photographic plates and some notebooks left in various parts of the upper Karangarua Valley, I should have endeavoured to pilot the Maori over the Pilkington snowfield into the Regina Creek Valley, making an ascent of Mount Glorious on the way. From that peak, a view into the Copeland Valley could be obtained, and much useful work done. But it was not a fit climb for one man, and my companion was not equal to it. He was willing, but utterly unable to do these things. How I regretted that Douglas, or some good man, was not here with me, wondering why this work was not considered worth the additional slight expense of a third member to our party. On returning to camp, I was aware that had the Maori found no birds, our meal would only consist of a small slice of bread, and I could see by Bill's face that he had found nothing, so did not ask any questions. When the billy had boiled and tea had been made, I took the last scone but one out of the bag and quartered it, one piece each for tea and one piece each for next morning. These scones were round and six inches in diameter by nearly an inch thick, so it can be seen that a quarter is not a sumptuous repast. To my intense surprise, Bill said, I mean no hungry, and refused his quarter. I knew he had not eaten anything all day, any more than I had, because there had been two scones in the bag that morning. I therefore exclaimed, Not hungry? That's all humbug. I me big feed today, said Bill, belly full. Me feel gland. What did you have? I asked. Oh, plenty food. You fell half bleed, he said. I me had Maori hen, weka, very good. I knew this was not true, because there were no feathers round the camp, so I said, 
you old sinner where are the feathers but he stuck to his point and replied you fell work all day i mean lie down all day and have good sleep sleep and no hungry you fell half bread it was evident then that the old boy wanted me to have all the food because i had been working and go without himself having tried to tell a lie about the weka but protesting was no use he still held out and said he was not hungry at last i said all right old man if you can't eat that bread now put it aside till to-morrow you are not going to starve yourself for me we are both in the same boat this did not satisfy him but after half an hour i saw him take the bread and eat it quietly as there was evidently no chance of my taking it i could not help being touched by his unselfishness which fully corroborated the many stories we hear of what fine characters some of the old maoris have quite different to the younger generation of natives i fear so far the weather had been cloudless and perfect but a great change appeared on the following morning instead of the beautiful clear blue of the new zealand sky there were high black windy-looking clouds drifting from the northwest the forerunners of bad weather the effect of an approaching northwest storm is very grand in the high ranges of the west coast it first shows in the shape of high light filmy clouds which drift slowly over and far above the dividing range gradually thickening and closing together until they appear like a coal-black curtain against which the eternal snows of the grand peaks stand out with weird distinctness a few hours after this black-looking pall has passed behind the range ragged and torn clouds roll in from the sea at a level of from four thousand to six thousand feet and cover everything bringing with them the rain accordingly i could see that we should be fortunate if the weather remained fine for even twenty-four hours hastily swallowing our quarter scone and cup of tea at six a m we rolled everything up preparatory to a quick retreat out of the valley i gave the maori most of the things to carry and sent him on up the moraine-covered glacier to the small gravel flat under douglas pass and followed with the instruments and camera making rapid observations and carrying the traverse up the trunk of the glacier on reaching the flat about two p m i spent two hours traversing it round fixing more stations and going a little way on to fitzgerald glacier and at four p m returned to the large rock at the northern end of the flat near the moraine of the douglas under which we intended to bivouac if necessary by this time however the rain clouds had obscured the main peaks and i was unable to fix the point from which my baseline was to start so reluctantly decided to make the best of a bad job and stay here in spite of the storm and no food from this flat we could retire to christmas flat at a pinch in any weather but at the camp below douglas two hours rain would have cut us off completely by flooding two creeks which we had to cross rather than go away leaving the work incomplete i determined to stay on this flat for another day at least though there was only enough grass to boil the billy with difficulty by sunset we had chained the baseline and turned into our blankets having eaten a quarter of the last remaining scone i shall never forget the grandeur of that night and i do not think the maori will either though for a different reason within fifty yards of us the hillside rose sheer for nearly one thousand feet and then in tiers and ledges for the same height above to near cairn four and looked as if it might at any moment fall forward and annihilate us half a mile away the douglas neve sent down its ice avalanches all through the night sometimes twenty-five sometimes thirty in the hour these crashed down with a sharp report like a great gun echoing and re-echoing from cliff to cliff surrounding that great basin the thunder of one had hardly died away before the next began
then at midnight the storm burst on us with its peals of thunder and its vivid lightning adding to the noise of the avalanches and causing an indescribable din as the crash of the thunder and roar of the avalanches echoed from the surrounding precipices sounding as if all the demons of ancient and modern times were loose poor old bill no likey and during the hour or two after midnight while this overwhelming noise was going on i believe he was calling all the gods to witness that he would never come into such a place again every now and then with a nervous laugh he would say i me tinky typo devil here fortunately at three a m it had calmed down so i got up and saw that the mists were lifting giving me an opportunity at four o'clock to fix my baseline at seven a m we ate the last quarter of the remaining scone and rolling up our loads went over to the foot of the ascent to the pass the mist however would not give me a chance of seeing the proper route till we had waited for an hour or more but at last an opening gave me the line to take and we began our climb the rope was necessary three or four times to give my companion and his dog a help over the rocks but he travelled well and needed much less nursing than on our descent after reaching the pass descending the Macero glacier and dropping over the karangarua pass in a thick wet mist we made christmas flat in the afternoon having got three kias on the way here a glorious stew and a large feed of porridge soon made us less hungry and helped us to enjoy the luxury of even a batwing after our long spell of a month in makeshift shelters the three days of starvation in the twain was my fault entirely for i deliberately took the risk instead of going down to our depot for more provisions however i believe that any one in my place would have done the same that is taken the risk rather than going down the river and punching up more stores over that rough ground the thirtieth of january was very cold and wet snow falling round the camp so we stayed in our batwing by a good fire all day on the following morning we went down to lame duck creek as there was nothing to eat at christmas flat having given up waiting for the few additional observations i had hoped to obtain for the weather was still bad here we were again amongst our friends the birds catching three ducks and two weckas on the first of february we again moved on reaching the rat trap in the afternoon where i stayed for four days having to make a climb on each side of the valley I sent the Maori down with part of our impedimenta to Bark Camp, on Castle's Flat, telling him to bring back some sugar, flour, and salt. It may be remembered that we left four days' provisions at the Rat Trap, on our way up the river, but of these the flour had turned black with damp, and the jam was fermenting in the tin. On the Maori's return he stated that there was no sugar at Castle's Flat, a great disappointment, as it was now more than two weeks since we had any. Consequently, I was tempted to eat the jam which, owing to fermentation in a tin, may have become poisoned. On turning the pot round in my hand, however, I saw a guarantee by the maker, Kirkpatrick of Nelson N.Z., that his tins were especially prepared, and no chemical action could be produced by fermentation. So I decided to take the risk, for we were hungering for something sweet. I suggested to Bill that we should toss up, as to who was to try it first, but he laughed and said, "'You me both eat.' We therefore each took some, and between us finished the whole of it. Next morning I had forgotten all about the jam, when Bill suddenly said, You me, no dead, jam no bad. This reminds me of an occasion some weeks before, on which the Maori lost his footing, and fell over a sheer drop of fifteen feet, onto some rocks below. I did not hear him fall, but was astonished by a shout from below. I me no dead, I me right. 
and on making investigations we found he had fallen onto his load, which, as is usually the case, had turned him over onto his back, and he was practically unhurt. On the 4th of February we went down to Bark Camp and spent two or three days, generally washing up, patching our rags, bathing, and posting up the field books. The Maori had a complete change of good clothes here, but mine were at Scott's, so I had to do the best with my present rags. It was little use trying to mend my nether garments, for they consisted of canvas patches fastened together by other patches, very little of the original stuff remaining, but care enabled me to make them sufficiently decent to appear at Scott's by binding them round my legs with flax. When Bill put on his good clothes, he looked a terrific swell beside me, and I told him so, saying, Well, Bill, old man, they'll think you're my master. But he would not admit it. Oh, no, he said, you fell to boss still. On the seventh we wended our way down to the low country, and calling at the foota for a pair of boots which I had left here in November, those I had on having completely come to an end, we arrived at Scott's farm in the evening, just a day or two over nineteen weeks since I last saw a habitation, for I had been in the ranges ever since we originally left on October 1st, 1894, and never been nearer to it than the foota during that period. End of chapter 15